welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you to the generous underwriters of Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Thursday, June 1st, we're studying Revelation chapter 10, verses 1 to 11. In today's text, John sees a mighty angel coming down from heaven. This angel stands on the sea and on the land and gives John a scroll to eat. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us returning guest, Pastor Jeremiah Johnson. Pastor Johnson serves at Glory of Christ Lutheran Church in Plymouth, Minnesota. Pastor Johnson, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thanks. Great to be here. As we get started today, Pastor, let's talk a little bit about the book of Revelation in general. How should we approach it as Christians? Why do you think it's a useful and helpful book to us? Right. Well, of course, the the first and most obvious reason is because God gave it to us. But uh, but aside from that, um, it's it's meant to be an encouragement, and I think we'll find that in our text today, especially that um, if you recall that um, that many of the, the the churches in Asia Minor were facing persecution from without, and of course, problems from within. So not that that ever happens today, right? Uh, but but they were being very much encouraged by, um, you know, really by a revelation, not just of the future, but really, you might say, the veil being uncovered from all of human history. Uh, that's what revelation has an awful lot to do with. Um, now, of course, there's always a warning uh, or word of caution uh, because there's great many very well-intentioned Christians out there who almost try to use it a little bit like a crystal ball in order to figure out, well, what's the next thing that's going to happen? And that's really a misunderstanding of the book. Um, you know, the book is really to provide a salutary warning and encouragement to Christians, you know, who are who are under fire and are struggling with the world at the time. It's not to provide kind of a blow-by-blow, um, you know, prediction of the future where we can, you know... In other words, we shouldn't read Revelation as if it's interpreting the newspaper or probably more modernly, whatever your newsfeed is nowadays. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. We had another guest that talked about trying to avoid newspaper exegesis. Right. But you're, you're right. Maybe the Twitter feed exegesis is the, the more modern way of saying that same thing. So yes. that's, that's what we want to avoid. So let's, let's talk a little bit about where we are in the book then. We're in Revelation 10. What kind of context do we need within this part of Revelation to understand this chapter? Right. We would do well just to talk a little bit about the, the whole structure of the book um, because it gives us a bearing. And, and of course, full disclosure, this is not the only way to interpret the structure of the book. Um, but uh, but most, most Lutheran commentators I know of, and frankly, just generally speaking, most uh, conservative commentators, uh, generally follow this structure in and of itself. Um, the introduction of, of Revelation, the, uh, the letters to, to the seven churches, that's pretty universally acknowledged as being kind of like the first section of it. And then I would take the, uh, you know, the, almost all the rest of it, kind of from the very beginning of chapter four all the way 
almost through chapter 22 uh, before the epilogue, though, as being one kind of central part. But it's, it is marked by um, a, a three cycles of sevenfold visions. Um, and so you got the, the sevenfold seals, you got the sevenfold trumpets, and you got the sevenfold bulls. Now, of course, this would be a lot easier and a lot cleaner if it, that's all that there was. But then there's these, there's kind of intermediary parts, um, you know, these, uh, you might call them uh, excurses or, you know, interludes or something like that, where they kind of break these things up. But still that structure, that uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, all the way through three times, um, we ought to interpret as really kind of a, a rehearsal of, um, of the history of the earth, specifically the history of the age of the church, basically being from the time of, uh, you know, after Christ's ascension, all the way until the end. And of course, your mileage varies a little bit with each of these three cycles. And so today we're, we're in the middle of the second cycle, that is the, uh, the cycle of the trumpets. But what we're going to do is we're going to have one of those little interruptions, commercial breaks, if you want to call them that, except for they have explanatory value and they're not trying to sell you toothpaste instead. And so we're done with the seventh, uh, sixth trumpet, and, but we're just before the seventh trumpet and we have this, uh, this vision uh, of an angel, but I don't want to get into that, uh, that too much. But in the end, I think this is one of the really strong chapters where we see that in the midst of so much unknown, so I'm giving you the, the end of the story at the beginning, in the midst of, of so many unknown things and so many hidden mysteries, the Lord gives us reason for both comfort and assurance that, um, that he will not, contrary to what it might seem, he will not fail to make good on his promises. So that's kind of... Uh, all of chapter 10 in a nutshell. So I'm, I'm curious, and I know this may be a difficult question to answer because I'm not sure that I have a, a good answer for it myself, but in terms of the structure and where we've been, you know, we've been reading about the trumpets in chapters 8 and 9, and we've been told that there are three woes that are going to come, and the, the first woe comes with the fifth trumpet that's blown, and you hear that that's over in 9.12. And then at the end of nine, you hear the sixth angel blow, the sixth trumpet. That's what we just heard. Mm -hmm. And we're going to hear in chapter 11 that the second woe has passed, the third woe is soon to come. And so I guess I'm curious in terms of this being an interlude or not, or, or in what way this is an interlude and maybe not just a part of the, the sixth trumpet all the way till the middle of chapter 11. Do any... Again, I'm not sure how to answer that myself. I, I do see the difference between the content of what we're going to read in, in today's text versus what we looked at at the end of chapter 9. But I'm curious, on, on or in what sense it's an interlude, do you think? Right. I mean, I think there are a couple of textual, uh, a couple of textual hints. Uh, but more than anything, I think it, as you already intimated, that it's a, it's a change in the content. I mean, this is... I mean, he says, and I saw another strong angel or, or another mighty angel. And so, in other words, clearly this, this pattern is broken and because it's not designated as one of the, uh, the angels with a trumpet. And so, um, you know, because it's very, very predictable before that, all the other angels with their number, they're, they are, they're given a, 
you know, an order to them, but this one is another mighty angel. It's not given a number, and it's it is described differently than the other angels. This is not uh it's not unheard of, but most of these angels are not referred to as strong or mighty ones. Sure. And so I would probably say that's the most noteworthy. Plus, honestly, it doesn't it it really feels like um you know, a break in the narrative. Uh, I'm not sure if I could describe it much better than that. Sure. Unless you want to get into a lot of like really geeky details about. Well, and that's where, I mean, as you said, the the way that Revelation is structured by a variety of commentary, commentators, you're going to see a variety of, of structures. And, and that's where, I, on the one hand, yeah, this sounds different. And on the other hand, you know, you've had those four angels who were holding back certain things in the previous. Here's another one. There seems to be a connection, but there is a there's difference, I guess. And I don't know. Again, that's that's about I think as far as, as at least I'm prepared to talk about. I don't know enough to to say much more than that. But I guess I don't want to entirely divorce it from what we've read in the sixth trumpet either, if that makes right, sense. Right, right. I mean, in much the same way, it, I think it's pretty well described as an interlude. Um, and, and your caution is certainly, I think, well heeded by not only myself, but also our listeners that it's not like totally divorced. It's not a total tangent right. um, that uh, that this is still coherent with this ongoing revelation because we still do have a couple of, um, you know, thematic elements that tie it together. We've got yet another scroll. We've got a number of these kind of apocalyptic characteristics. You know, you've got, you've got thunder and God speaking. And I mean, yes, even though this is a strong angel, it's still an angel. And you have also John... You know, so it's not as if we, it's not like we flipped channels. Sure. It's almost like we've got, you know, it's almost a little bit like a flashback, except for it sure. doesn't have the temporal character necessarily, but in the sense that you're still in the same general storyline, but this is a, more of a little bit of an aside, but it's still in the whole context of the story. Sure. You're not on sure. a different, you're not on a different playing field. Right, right. And just as another, I mean, I think this may be the last thing to say, Revelation chapter 7 we talked about as a bit of an interlude in the midst of the seals, because you have that sixth seal that's opened, and the question is asked, who can stand? Chapter 7 really comes along and answers that question in a bit of an interlude sort of fashion. So I think something similar happening here makes Absolutely. sense. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So, all right. So with that, let's take a look at chapter 10. This is Revelation chapter 10. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud, with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea, and his left foot on the land, and called out with a loud voice, like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded, and when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants the prophets." Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. 
and I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. That's our text for today. That's Revelation chapter 10, verses 1 to 11. Pastor Johnson, you've already talked to us a little bit about this, another mighty or strong angel coming down from heaven. And we've seen a variety of figures called angels in the book of Revelation. In chapters 2 and 3, the seven letters were addressed to the angels of the churches, and we talked about how those angels very well could be the pastors, the messengers to the churches. And we've seen plenty of angels in the book of Revelation that are heavenly beings, created spirits. I think that's what we normally think of when we Mm -hmm. hear the word angel. Here we've got a mighty angel, and you've already pointed out there's something a little bit unique about the way he's described. So who who are we talking about here? Who's yeah. the mighty angel? <laughs> who is the? Oh yeah, you just jumped right to the difficult question. So I'm gonna punt on that one. But I will tell you at least tell what, us about him. I'll, I'll at least tell you what's possible. I mean, it's it's worth repeating though, uh, for the sake of your listeners, that the actual word um, we've got so much baggage with the word angel. You know, yeah, be they either kind of you know like Hallmark figurines, or we have you know pictures sometimes in the uh, you know the Middle Angels or the Middle Ages of these you know cute little flying cherubs, right? Um, but, you know, the word angel means messenger, and it's right to interpret it as these, you know, angelic heavenly messengers, like the seraphim, um, which is often what they are. But, but of course, the word that we have for messenger doesn't only refer to the angels. And so uh, so that's always worthwhile noting, and I think that's, that supports the thesis that you... Uh, that you were positing that uh, that the angels in the first three chapters are probably the pastors because they're often called messengers as well. So uh, so nothing too weird about that. But this one, look at how he's described. I mean, um, first of all, you don't often get this description of a mighty or strong angel, but also all these other characteristics uh, that are associated with it are very close to divine. I mean, first of all, you have he, you know, he's he's clothed or wrapped in a cloud, um, and that that brings, of course, um, uh, that brings the vision of Christ Himself to mind. Um, you know, not only do we have that picture of the Son of Man in Ezekiel uh, chapter one, He's coming on clouds. I know, I, I think we also have the same picture in Daniel. But then, much more remarkably, we have it again on Jesus's own lips. In, for example, when he's talking about, um, you know, his coming, uh, his second coming there in Matthew chapter 24 with the sheep and the goats, he says, you know, the Son of Man will come on the clouds, right? But even more noteworthy, he talks about it, if you recall, from the cross itself later on in chapter 26. And so he says, you know, you'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds, um, and then, of course, we all have this later on in the book of Revelation 2. And then more broadly speaking, um, we have all these images of the clouds associated with the, um, the very presence of God, like up on Sinai or in the tabernacle on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And so you got all these images kind of floating around. But, I mean, here's what I would caution. I know some people do want to jump right away and say, oh, well, this messenger is probably the Je- Jesus. And, like, I... I'm a little bit more cautious about that, but I would say at the very least, we can say that this angel is coming with, you might say, the telltale 
um, signs of Jesus's own authority, which I think really should impress upon us. And, you know, and if it turns out that it really is, you know, Jesus himself, fine. I mean, I don't think, you know, this is not going to, uh, uh, you know, to keep anybody out of the gates of, uh, of heaven or something like that. Um, but also there's even more though, maybe a point for that, even though, even though I'm hesitant to identify him with Jesus, um, he's got a rainbow over his head too. Yeah. And, uh, you remember back from earlier in, uh, what is it? Revelation chapter four with the description of the ancient of days, that is, uh, you know, that's the rainbow surrounds his throne and um, and then you also have his face shining like the sun or being like the sun. Um, you have that description, of course, in on the Mount of Transfiguration as well. But if I'm not mistaken, I think we are described as also shining like the sun as well. Uh, so I don't think, I think in the end, what we really should take from this is not necessarily a, a direct identification of, well, who is this mighty angel? Because the big thing about the mighty angel isn't the angel. It's the one whose words the angel delivers. Because once again, angel is messenger. And it's about the message, not the one who carries it. But what we can see here is that clearly, if this is the description of the messenger, then the message must be that magnificent, right? Um, I mean, you look at his, even his description, Right, his uh, his legs are like pillars of fire. Um, there's not a whole lot of other associations with that in the Bible, but then he sets his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. Now, just envision that for a second. I mean, you know, you can almost imagine he's like bigger than Colossus. I mean, he this is a massive, massive angel, and I I agree with Lewis Brighton when he argues that um that the foot on the sea and the foot on the land basically represents the totality of, um, you know, of all the earth. The, that whoever, whatever message this angel has, this message is going to be for the entire earth. And we'll see that, uh, you know, further bolstered. So I guess, so I think there's two things to take note of. First, the clear, like, glory and weight of his uh, of his message because of how the angels described, but also you might say the universality of the, uh, of the message that it's not just for, you know, a small, you know, a small audience. It's meant for the entire world. And I think we'll see all of those things sort of uh, bolstered as we go through the text. All right. So we're not going to try to identify one way or another. It could be Christ. It might not be, you know, you talked about, us shining in glory, the the thought also crossed my mind, even Moses in the Old Testament, yeah. from being in the presence of Yahweh, he shone so that he had to cover his face when he was with the people. So that the fact that his face is shining like the sun doesn't necessarily mean he has to be Jesus himself. And it, it, it is striking, for example, in chapter 1, where John knew he was seeing Jesus, he fell down. Here he doesn't seem to have that same reaction, but again, either way, the point of that you're making I think is very helpful that the message that this angel brings is the message that comes from God, whether or not this angel is intended to be Christ himself or not. He's bringing a message from God and for the entire creation. So he's got right foot on the sea, left foot on the land. Later we're going to hear about the one who's created 
heaven and earth and the sea and all right. things in it. So this is a, a universal message. And we're going to talk a little bit more about the scroll that he's holding later. What about his voice in verse 3? It sounds like a lion roaring. What's the significance there? Right, right. Before I get there, though, I wanted to reinforce one thing, just because I find myself um, suffering from it. I think it's very easy for us to think of the majesty of a person, but I think we easily gloss over the idea that one's message might be majestic. And I guess that's what I'm really trying to drive at here, that, uh, that we should actually bow down in awe and majesty of the divine message that the angel is bringing, not the angel itself. But um, the... Uh, so if I can, just briefly, the yeah, reason ahead, that we ahead. should see that this is a mighty angel is because of the message that he bears. Precisely. Not necessarily because of whatever his size would or wouldn't be apart from that. The, the thing exactly. that makes him majestic is the word that he carries. I like that. Right, right. And, and his appearance reflects that. Yeah. It doesn't authorize it, if that makes sense. Yeah. So yeah, but the, the lion, I mean, we've got so many, I'm sure you can think of like a million references to lions in... Um, you know, in the in the Bible, and I don't think I think we'd be a little presumptuous to necessarily tie it to just one. Of course, one that comes to mind is you know the Lion of the Tribe of Judah. You might also have the vision or the um, uh, recollection of you know that great Isianic picture of the Lamb lying down with the lot or yeah, the Lamb lying down with the Lion as well. You know, and this the sort of peace that he brings, and so you have kind of these two very different images. I think this one clearly, given the context, considering that he's like a lion roaring in the seven thunders, sounding, I mean, this is clearly of the the force and the majesty of a lion roaring. Um, and uh, so we already had this back in Revelation 5. So that's probably the, the first place we really should look. When it says, one of the elders said to me, weep no more, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that we can open uh, the scroll and its seven seals. And so here we have, you know, a lion being brought in, obviously, as a description of Jesus himself. Um, and so once again, I, I feel like I keep eating my words. I keep saying, don't, don't identify it with Jesus. And yet there's all these implications here that seem to identify with Christ. <laughs> but, um, but, but the lion of the tribe of Judah is the reason for the end of our weeping, that there's a strong deliverance and hope associated with, uh, with this lion. So not necessarily a matter for fear, at least for us, but also that he conquers as well. And that opens up the, uh, the scroll and really the, the revelation of God's historic plan as well. And so I think you got all of these little pieces of both you know, majesty and might and force and even you might say fear, but in a godly sense, um, you know, all of these things kind of pouring into here. But one thing I think that's unmistakable is that a lion's roar is, well, exactly that, unmistakable. In other words, um, to quote uh, one of my favorite Martin Franzman hymns that nobody actually seems to ever know, um, the, the trumpet that none could silence or mistake. Now, it's talking about a trumpet, but I would actually associate it with, with the lion here, that uh, he cannot be drowned out. He cannot be mistaken like, oh, wait, was that a bird? No, it was a lion. And so there's a, a, a sentence of unmistakability 
and undeniability about about all of this. And um, in many ways, I think it's very much in contrast to the sort of rejectability of the Son of Man, you know, during his earthly ministry, that uh, that they easily brushed Jesus off and it didn't seem to be, a, you know, such a big deal. That will change. Hmm. Well, so, in, and I'm trying to, to think through this within the context of the sixth trumpet, which we just heard at the end of chapter 9, where you have these demonic horse warriors. I mean, I don't, they were just described in horrific detail, and it sounds awful. And the response by the world has been, by and large, unbelief, according to what St. John said at the end of chapter 9. So in that context, then, to see this mighty angel who's bringing a message of majesty for the entire earth, sounding with the voice of, of God, it seems to me that that provides great comfort to the church, a, a sense of, of protection from this, from this great evil that's coming about in the midst of this sixth trumpet. We talked a little bit about the connection of the trumpets to the plagues of Egypt and how the people of Israel were protected, especially from the latter plagues. Mm-hmm. It, it seems maybe that there's some sense of that comfort and protection that the church should receive from this mighty angel in chapter 10, right on the heels of what we've seen so far from the sixth trumpet. Absolutely. Um, and I think that's going to, to bear itself out even more clearly as, um, you know, as the scroll is actually handed to John and, um, and this, this great, there's going to be a, a bit of a tension that's already, already implicit. And that is, um, just to let the cat a little bit about out of the bag is, uh, you know, on the one hand, I mean, the, uh, we're not always clear on the game plan, right? We don't, so many of the, uh, you know, the, the revelations, whether it be, you know, whether it be the, the scrolls or the bowls or whatever, the, the sevenfold visions, we're not sort of told everything in its exhausting detail, but this angel serves as a messenger um, largely for us as Christians, even though his um, proclamation is universal, for us specifically as Christians, it provides a, a tremendous amount of comfort even in the face of um, of what is hidden and mysterious and unrevealed, and so there's there's that ongoing tension here, and I think that dovetails really nicely with that that sixth trumpet because you think that it, it doesn't look like um, you know it doesn't look like the lamb right who was slain um, you know is really experiencing the kind of victory you know in other words this is not. Um, the way that all of the book of Revelation unfolds until the very end, there is always this kind of sense of tension, whereas we sort of know how it all ends up. We know that ultimately the victory of the lamb who has been slain, um, you know, will in, in the end remain victorious, but it doesn't, um, how would I put this? That doesn't always seem evident in, in, in here in this age. And I think that's really where the comfort lies for us. Yeah, so we'll keep looking at that comfort and more on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor Jeremiah Johnson this morning about Revelation 10. We'll be right back. Please stick around.
Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Thursday, June 1st. We're studying Revelation chapter 10, verses 1 to 11 with Pastor Jeremiah Johnson. He serves at Glory of Christ Lutheran Church in Plymouth, Minnesota. Pastor Johnson, prior to the break, we were talking about this mighty angel. We said that his voice is like a lion roaring. And then John also tells us that when this angel calls out, there are seven thunders that sounded. So it seems like a similar image, but maybe there's some more significance we can draw from the seven thunders. Right. And of course, as we have already recognized, seven is always a really significant number in the book of Revelation, not necessarily with one particular interpretation, but it's always a, a certain sense of fullness um, right. and especially associates nicely with these um, sevenfold visions we've been talking about. Um, but and unfortunately, this is another good example of um, of a biblical image, I think, that Revelation is look, using that doesn't have, like, one clear antecedent. And so, um, you know, God's voice is sometimes described as, uh, you know, as thundering. You know, um, you, of course, one of the, the first places, at least, that I think of is always, uh, you know, there at Mount Sinai, um, you know, there in, as it's described in Exodus 19, you know, that there's, of course, a lightning and thunders flashing from the, uh, the, from the top of Sinai. Um, but there's other places, too, they're talking about, for instance, in the Lord's, um, or in the Psalms, about the Lord's voice thundering from on high. Um, and so I think it's even possible that um, the, uh, you know, these seven thunders correspond to, they're the, the deliverance, the message of, the voice of, you might even say, these sevenfold visions that we're smack dab in the middle of. And so these seven thunders are, could even be, I'm not, I'm not willing to, not willing to stake uh, too much on this, but take this for your consideration. It could be, you know, of the, the sevenfold vision of the seals or the sevenfold vision of the trumpets. I think the trumpets in particular makes a lot of sense because, you know, it's a loud sound, trumpets, thunders, um, you know, or the, uh, or the seven bowls. But whatever, Whatever they actually do stand for, though, I think, um, we note that he's about to actually record it. So in other words, this, these seven thunders have made an impression. They're somehow or another intelligible to John, and he's just about ready to put pen to paper, pen to scroll in this case. And I think then it's remarkable that this voice says, wait, right? Don't write it down. Seal up what the seven thunders have said and don't write it down. Um, and I think that introduces a, uh, a concept for us that, uh, that we're actually going to have introduced explicitly in verse 7. Um, talks about the mystery of God would be fulfilled. That, that there's, you know, God doesn't give us the whole game plan. Um, history is full of divine mysteries. And I mean, specifically for us as Lutherans, this is a very, very comfortable place, you might say, um, because uh, we recognize that it is, um, 
we recognize that that the Lord does not, you know, reveal all things to us. So we as as Lutherans actually, you know, we have a really robust theology of, um, you know, God revealed and God hidden, and uh, it's a really um, it's a really important distinction, I think, that uh, that we Lutherans uh, provide, um, well, to the whole Christian Church, that. You know, the, yeah, you can look outside, you can see, you can discern certain things about the, the very nature of God, but, you know, we call that general revelation, but we also have, uh, you know, we have this category of special revelation as well, where we can only know, um, you know, about God's plan of salvation, you know, through what he's revealed in Jesus Christ. But, but this, this distinction between the hidden revealed God acknowledges the fact that there are simply things that God does not reveal about himself. And um, that in many ways, those things can be, can often be, um, you know, terrifying to us. But he, of course, he tells us precisely what we need, uh, what we need to know and believe uh, in order to be saved. And so we were given to, maybe I shouldn't say struggle, but we sometimes do struggle with this, this topic of, of mystery. Why hasn't God always, t- you know, told us these things? Um, you know, and, and I'm sure as a pastor, you, you've run into this any number of times where, you know, people will ask questions, not just that you don't know, but that the Lord simply hasn't given us a clear answer to. And we sort of have to plead ignorance in, in that way because, you know, being a Christian isn't actually having all the answers because there's some, some answers that are just not to be had. So I assume you've had that experience, right? Oh, for sure, for sure. You know, what's striking about John being told not to write this down. I mean, there's. I think there's a number of places we could go with this conversation. Just most immediately, my mind goes back to the gospel that John writes. And we didn't really talk about this, but I know there are many who suggest that John perhaps wrote Revelation first of all of the things that he wrote, and then his gospel comes later. If that is the case, then, then you wonder if this experience here in Revelation chapter 10 influences what John does write in chapter 20 of his gospel, where he gives you the purpose. And mm-hmm. he says, Jesus did many other things in the presence of his disciples, which aren't written in this book. Yeah. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing have life in his name. And it, I mean, I think that this, this verse then from Revelation 10 does give a, an insight into what it means that the scriptures are inspired from maybe the, the other direction. But we often think about what is written and why the Lord inspired that to be written. Here we have a glimpse into what isn't written and why right. the Lord... And he doesn't say why, other than what I think John gives us in chapter 20. Maybe there, for whatever reason, the Lord in his wisdom says, you don't need to know that, and so I'm going to tell John, don't write that down. But we have the confidence that what he does write down is for our good, and it is for, for our faith in Christ. So, I mean, it's just a... This is an unusual thing. You wish you had more information <laughs> right here, which of course is maybe part of the point. <laughs> And exactly what you're trying to say. Right, right. But I think there is kind of a, a really salutary sort of lesson of faith for all that. And that is, um, it reminds us of who we are, that we in the end are not, uh, you know, we are not the masters of the universe. And ultimately our faith doesn't rest upon having all the answers. That um, you know, it kind of reminds me of, uh, right, Icarus, uh, you're flying too close to the sun, right? That was Icarus, right? I'm remembering yeah, that, that right. Was. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, and that it does, it puts us in our place and invites us to be 
um, the very children whom Jesus welcomes, uh, you know, into his, uh, you know, into his arms and says, you know, uh, the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Not that we are like innocent as children or even as simple as children, but that there always comes a point at which we simply accept the testimony of our father. And when he says, you don't need to know that, that we actually agree and we may not need to know that. Yeah, yeah. I do think it's, it's maybe worth pointing out that sometimes I think we speak of the word mystery in two different ways. One of the ways is the way we're talking about right now, where the mystery is something that God hides from us and we don't know. So we right. don't know what the seven thunders said that John wanted to write down, and it's a mystery in that sense. Sometimes we talk about, say, the sacraments as mysteries, but not because we don't know what they are or what they do. Right. We do know that baptism saves, and we do know that the Lord's Supper is the body and blood of Jesus, but they are mysteries in the sense that we don't understand how that works, but we do know what they are and what they do. And right. I think that's, that's, worth, uh, that's an important distinction, because sometimes the, the mystery is that God doesn't reveal it, period. Sometimes mm -hmm. God does reveal it, and we just don't understand how that could work, but we do confess it to be true. Right, right. No, that's a very fine, a very fine distinction. And um, yeah, I'll leave it at that. Yeah, that's fine. And I just, I, the reason I think it's, it's worth pointing out, especially when it comes to the sacraments, is because we do know what they are. Mm -hmm. And we don't want to say that, well, they're mysterious, and that means we just can't kind of know. No, we do know, because God said. And when God says, we know, even if it doesn't make sense. So anyways, yeah, I, I think it's an important point. So let's keep, keep talking about this angel then. So the angel standing on the sea and on the land, and now he makes an oath in verse 6. He, and here's, so he, he makes an oath by the Creator, and there, you know, we're talking about who this angel is. Well, if he's going to make an oath by the Creator, who does that, I don't know. I don't know if that helps us identify any way, either way. What what is the oath? What's the point of the oath in six and seven? Right. So the uh, the oath I think is once there, what again there uh, to confirm for us the validity of the message he's giving to John. You know, he swore by him who lives forever and ever. And and uh, I mean, this is a perfectly good example of actually keeping the second commandment. I mean, this is that this is. This is the kind of uh, of oath that uh, that is actually pleasing to God. Um, in, in what does he swear that that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as the as he announced to his servants the prophets. And so, what we see there is that the scroll is not even meant to be sort of kept under wraps forever but only at least for a period of time until the, uh, the seventh trumpet, which I'm not going to, I won't steal that from whoever has it, uh, you know, when that actually ends up coming, uh, coming due. And so this is a, it's a secret or a mystery kept for a time, but that once again, the Lord wouldn't hold out on us forever, you know, on that. So it does seem a little strange, though, that why would the angel actually need to make the oath? But he makes it really for our own sake, um, not for, you know, not for his own sake. Um, it's, a, it's a comfort for us. Well, and I think what, you know, what's striking about the oath and the, what is said about it, especially at the end of verse 7, is that on the one hand, this is going to be fulfilled at the sounding of the seventh trumpet, and yet it's also at the very end, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. So while there is this, this mystery that is hidden, 
there is something that we, and again, this goes to maybe what we were trying to say earlier, it's going to be in line with what the Lord has already revealed through the prophets. So it's not going to be something different than what, I guess, that, or it's not going to be out of line from what he's right. done and said before. Right, right. I mean, I think it very much reminds me of the um, of that line from Moff, uh, from the beginning of the book of Hebrews that we uh, that's made its way into our liturgy in many and various ways. God spoke to his people of old by the prophets, but now in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, which really gives us a strong sense of continuity between, you know, the uh, the prophetic record of the Old Testament and what the Lord is continuing to reveal, um, you know, in his own son, Jesus Christ. And so, so in some ways, you're right, even though it's a mystery, um, in one way, I think it would be an odd thing for us to all be shocked by it. Maybe in awe, but not in the sense of surprised that uh, like, oh, well, God's done like, you know, he took a total 90 degree turn here. Now he's doing something completely different. Now he's going to send, I don't know, he's going to, uh, he's going to have us all saved by, a, you know, a, you know, a, an, a, uh, an invasion of alien hamsters or something like that. I don't know, something crazy. <laughs> That's not going to happen. <laughs> yeah, not going to happen, folks. <laughs> That's good. One, one more thing that, and I'm not sure that this this leads us anywhere, but it it does it strikes me just the again some similarities and yet differences between what's happening here and what we saw earlier. We were talking about the lion from the tribe of Judah, who shows up in Revelation chapter five, and he shows up there in the context of a scroll that's written front and back. It's it's full of of words. But it's sealed up. John weeps until he realizes that the lamb who was slain, the lion of the tribe of Judah, can open this scroll. In contrast to that, here you've got a little scroll that's described as open, and John wants to write it down, but he's told not to. So you have a, a big scroll full of words that is closed but needs to be open. Here you've got a small scroll that's open, but John is told, don't write it down yet. And, and the lion is there in both. I'm not sure that there's anything there, but it's, I, I don't know, maybe there is. It's just there's a lot of similarities, I think, or differences in that sense between 5 and 10. I don't know. Right. You know, and I've always I kind of wondered about the same thing. I'm glad you said it because um, uh, in this, just you, all of your hearers should take this as this is a little bit of two pastors just sort of speculating right now. Right. But, um, you know, I wonder if the relative sizes of them really kind of reflect the weight and importance of them. In other words, it, might, it could be something like this. You know, the big scroll is all the things that God has revealed, which are sufficient for us to know. But the little things, even though they will eventually be revealed at the, uh, the sounding of the, uh, of the seventh trumpet, they will, they will be kept secret and hidden away. Um, and yet there's they're a small thing, if that makes sense. Yeah. And so in other words, I think what it one of the things it might do for us is to put um, all of these things in perspective that, um, listen, what, uh, what, is, what is hidden from us as Christians and what is going on and the things that we cannot make sense of, these are really a little matter in the end. Because in the end, number one, um, he says, uh, where's that go? Where was that again? Yeah, that, that, that there would eventually be no more delay and that the, uh, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets, right? That this is not going to be some kind of total turn in, you know, in history, 
but that in the end it's it's a little thing and yeah. uh and so we're not we're not missing out on the important stuff right and 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 because we have the important stuff already right. written for us by the prophets by the apostles as well so if the whatever is hidden in that little scroll you have what you need to know in the words that God gave to the the servants the prophets right which I, yeah. goes which goes full circle back to the the quote that you made from John chapter 20, but these things are written yeah. so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and the son of God, that by believing you may have life in his name. I mean, that's in the end, that's the big thing. Yeah. And I think that's, that only underscores how easily misdirected we can become when we start to once again, do newspaper exegesis on the book of revelation. Yeah. That's right. That's right. So we've got this scroll that is in the hand of this mighty angel. And then in verse 8, John hears a voice. We're not done with the scroll yet. A voice from heaven tells John to go get that scroll, and he's going to take it and eat it. So there's some Old Testament background that we probably need to understand what's going on. Help us into this strange action. Yeah, what a bizarre thing. He's going to eat the scroll. Um but this does happen one other time in, uh, in the book of Ezekiel. Uh, Ezekiel is actually told to eat the scroll which the Lord delivers to them. In fact, very, very similar terminology too. And the sense is um, that, you know, this must be, you know, internalized, consumed, digested, um, so that then therefore he can declare it to God's people. That's the similarity here between John and Ezekiel. He doesn't just eat the scroll. It's not like he's eating it to get rid of it. You know, this isn't like a, a spy caught, uh, you know, in the web. And now he's got to eat the evidence, you know, so that they can go free. No, this is in the sense of how can you declare it to God's people without first, you know, it becoming internal to you. Um, and so now I think what's really interesting here is that likewise, John is described of, of the scroll being you know, sweet as honey as mouth and making your stomach bitter. And I think this is a pretty consistent theme throughout the, uh, the book of Revelation that um, we have, uh, for, to put it really simply, we've got as much bad news as we have good news, right? Um, or we might put it perhaps a little bit more theologically, um, uh, astutely as we have law and gospel, right? We have, we have the judgment of God, against, uh, you know, against those who are, who un, do not believe, uh, you know, we have all of this wrath being poured out. And yet at the same time, there's all this hope that's being given because, you know, the lion of the tribe of Judah will not be thwarted. And that, that he, and, and in many ways, we got all of that right away in the, the dual throne visions of chapters four and chapter five, you know, we see all the, you know, the heavenly host rejoicing. I mean, you know, the whole thing is done. You know, we get, we get the last chapter first, um, you know, only to return to it at the end. But we know that this thing is all wrapped up, that, that the, uh, the Ancient of Days and the Lamb are, are on the throne and they're the ones who are reigning and everything's happy and everything's great and, and, uh, and salvation actually works, right? There's no, I mean, in some ways, this is the worst novel ever written, right? Because there's no real suspense to it, so to speak. I mean, we are told exactly how it all lines up and then we're sort of given a lot of the details about some of, of the internal tension that does happen, you know, sort of in that in, in, in between time. But, um, but yeah, what was it? What was I saying all this about that? Um, oh, that's, that's the point though, that it's, it makes your stomach bitter and yet it's going to be sweet, um, you know, in your mouth, the, 
the the dual nature of this prophecy throughout the book of Revelation really cuts to both. And in many ways, um, I think speaks to our own experience as Christians as well, that uh, that um, the judgment of God, even after you're a Christian, you know, the judgment of God does not somehow go away. It's not that we're no longer confronted with, with any sins, um, that there is a very real sense of, um, uh, you know, there's, a very real sense of, uh, of judgment against us, uh, that we're called to repentance, and that this is indeed a grievous thing, that we we continue to sin even though we've been called by Christ. And yet, yet the sweetness comes in when we hear again and again, week after week, day after day, or month after month, um, you know, this absolution from our Lord uh, that, that um, cleanses our consciences and once again sets us free. And uh, you, know, you see that kind of same kind of law gospel tension all throughout, I think, the book of Revelation. And I think it's just being reflected here in the bitter, the bit, literally bitter and sweet nature of this scroll. Yeah. The, just to, to point out that this is the image that is picked up in the, the collect for the word that is often prayed. It was I think most often many Lutherans know it from the TL from TLH was page five I think that service, but it goes like this: Blessed Lord, you have caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning. Grant that we may so hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them. Right. That by the patience and comfort of your holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life. It's also in the front cover of the Lutheran Study Bible. I, I appreciate what what you're saying about that matter of inwardly digesting the word. And the the bitter and sweet nature of it, because I think, at least as I know, I've prayed that prayer very often before Bible classes. Now, that when I think about the inwardly digesting, I think of the joy that we have in that, and that's true. There is always joy in hearing and in digesting the word. Yet, but to know that there is that still that bitterness and the judgment that the law speaks against me, we might flee away from that and think, oh, it doesn't taste good, so I don't want to eat that. We mm-hmm. still need to. You still need to inwardly digest. All of that, it's all good for you. And I think seeing John having both of those experiences in the eating of the scroll is a helpful reminder to us that when the law tastes bitter, it's doing what it's supposed to do. So go ahead, digest it, repent, and then experience the the sweet joy of the gospel. Yeah, it's it's a bit like our own taste experiences that sometimes after you've had something in uh, that truly is bitter in your mouth, after you take a, a bite of, I don't know, a cookie or a piece of cheesecake or something like that. I mean, it, you know, it really, really brings that out. Um, so I'm, th- there's probably some kind of analogy with coffee here, but I'm not sure I'm qualified to make that. So <laughs> take us, take us in the very last thing that we hear in this chapter, John is told you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and Kings. It's a pretty, broad-reaching statement that he's told there. Yeah, but I think this is just another way of John saying the world. Prophesy about peoples, nations, languages, and kings. Um, you know, the, I think this comes full circle with the uh, the angel who has one foot on the sea and one foot on the land, the universal nature of this of this proclamation that he's making Likewise, when John receives it, it still has that sort of worldwide, um, you know, universal, um, you know, uh, that universal audience. 
you would say that, I mean, this is for the whole human race. I mean, oh, another way that I think that we're much more used to hearing something like this is from, you know, Matthew chapter 28, go make disciples of what, you know, just the folks in your backyard. No, all nations, all nations is the target for, uh, for God's kingdom. Uh, and so I think likewise, we can see verse 11 very much as a parallel to, you know, Matthew chapter 28. And, um, but it's, um, I think one of the other things that that accentuates is the really the the majestic nature of this entire um you know in this entire declaration and maybe this is perhaps just as much of a personal confession as it is a theological observation but I think one of the things that struck me the most profoundly about this this chapter is something like this, like, wow, the gospel's a really big deal. <laughs> and I, I don't mean to sound flippant about that because, I mean, I think that's something that, oh, yeah, yeah, we should all agree about. But when you really let the imagery, especially of this, this mighty angel set in, you realize that this, this is really the majesty, not merely of the angel, but that the proclamation that he ends up, that he, that he delivers, and then... It gets end up rolling up in this little scroll to John, um, that that it it makes me appreciate how small a thing the gospel often seems, but that my perception is what makes it so small, if that makes sense. That uh, that I make too little of it too often times because I mean let you know. I mean, you even look at the responses to it. I, I, I think there's a part of all of us that even as we read the gospel, uh, the gospels, um, and but also as we see the gospel going out in our lives, you know, we think like, oh, you know, the, this powerful dynamic message of God, this ought to be taking the world by storms, right? You know, it ought to be kicking down doors. And, you know, and I, I think this is one of the real appealing things. I'm not saying that anybody should be, but I mean, this is one of the appealing things, uh, you know, about... Um, you know, so much of, you know, Pentecostalism um, is that like, it's an impressive deal, right? To be able to handle snakes and hit people on the head and be, you know, being healed and whatnot. And, um, but one of the truths I think that's being articulated here in the book of Revelation is, is even when it may not seem like a big deal, even when it doesn't provide the kind of external signs of success that we long for, you know, that the gospel is indeed this unimaginably, divinely majestic message. That this is the most important words that the Lord is, that, that the world has ever heard. And yet, because they come in such humble and simple means, you know, perhaps not entirely unlike a baby in a manger, um, that we discount it that we don't think of it as highly as we ought. And we, uh, and we see the gospel not in the vision of, uh, you know, this great mighty angel in the beginning of Revelation 10, but we see it perhaps as this tiny, perhaps sometimes seemingly ineffectual scroll that, uh, that John is given to eat. And so, I don't know, for me, one of the prayers that I prayed after I, I, I finally finished this was, uh, Lord, open my eyes to see your gospel 
um, for the majestic gift that it truly is. And I realize that, you know, here in this age, for all of us uh, in the church, it is, um, that's just the way this age works. Um, that we don't always see, you know, the sort of the unshielded glory of the gospel any more than we see the unshielded, you know, any more than Moses was, was able to see the complete and unshielded glory of God, but as close as he got to it was seeing God's backside. And likewise for us, that as, um, that this is something to be believed, that the, the gospel is indeed, you know, the glorious and powerful message of God, um, you know, for both Jew and Gentile alike, for, for nations and languages and kings. Pastor Jeremiah Johnson is pastor at Glory of Christ Lutheran Church in Plymouth, Minnesota. He's been helping us today to study Revelation 10, verses 1 to 11. Pastor Johnson, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about Revelation chapter 10, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It's always a joy to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.